All right, Job chapter 34. When I was a kid, I, I remember distinctly that my parents would always, they had this phrase, and I'm, I'm going to tell this story knowing full well that my parents in the future will probably listen to this message and hear this. But my parents, if I, if I asked them why, what, what would they say? Because I said so. Any, anybody else's parents do that? When, when you were a kid, did they do that? Yeah. And it's irritating as a kid, right? And Because I said so. Well, I just wanted to know why. And then they're saying, because I said so. And now, I see as a parent, what was at work there? It was insubordination. Basically, the reason I was asking why is because I didn't want to do what they told me to. And so they would say, because I said so. Basically, they would, they would reassert their authority and they would say, you don't need any higher authority. I'm your parent. I told you to do it and do it. Now, our children don't do that. I'm just kidding. Our children ask why all the time. Now, maybe, you know, we, we've... we've we say something a little different now with our kids than, than my parents said to us. Instead of saying, because I said so, we actually tell them, because God said so, and there's no higher authority than God. So maybe some of you parents ought to you know, take notes on that. We as humans, listen, here's, here's where this relates. We as humans innately ask the question, why? We innately ask the question, why? We always want to know why do we have to do this? And so, when God tells us something, the question that, that we most easily ask is, why? Why does God tell me that I'm supposed to live my life this way? Why does He tell me this? Why does He say that? As we approach the book of Job, Job is asking uh, that very same question, why? Because Job is a righteous person. Job is a really good guy, and despite that, he loses everything. He loses his wealth. He loses his family. He loses his health. I mean, he loses everything that he could possibly lose. It was so bad, his wife said, let's just curse God and die. Now, Job started well. He started through his, his suffering well. I mean, that's where we get Job 1.21. Naked I come from a mother's womb. Naked I'll return there. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He starts in worship. I'm going to worship Him anyway, even though I don't understand why this is happening. And then His friends show up and they start talking all sorts of crazy. He has three friends and the rest of the book, just a spoiler alert, the rest of the book of Job is basically His three friends taking turns telling Job that, well, you must have done something bad because that's, that's how it works, right? You did something bad and that's why God's doing this. So by the time they're finished with Him, you see Job go from someone who's worshiping God, who's, who's being content in the Lord, saying, Lord, I, I trust you, I know that you're good, to at the end he's saying, you know what? God has put me in the wrong. God has wronged me. And so here at the end of the book, another guy steps up, Elihu, and he speaks truth. Unlike Job's three friends that don't speak truth, he finally does. And this is what Elihu has to say to Job. God is perfectly good and just. 
He's perfectly good. He's perfectly just. He's in authority and he's all powerful. Therefore, Job, you should humbly submit yourself to him. And that's not just for Job, but listen, that's a word to us as well. We should submit ourselves to God's authority. We should submit ourselves humbly to God's authority. So join with me as we read Job 34, starting in verse 10. And I'm going to ask if you would please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word together. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that He should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that He should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, He will repay him, and according to His ways, He will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave Him charge over the earth? And who laid on Him the whole world? If He should set His heart to it and gather to Himself His spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the works of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Father, as we come to this passage, I pray, Lord, that we would understand what it's saying, but more than that, that we would take away from it, that we would apply it to our lives. Father, that we would put ourselves under Your Word, that we would see Your Word as an authority for us. And Lord, as we listen to these words that ultimately come from You, that are Your words, I pray, Lord, that You would remind each and every one of us that You are the highest authority, that You are the one who is perfectly in control. And Father, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Elihu, on behalf of God, gives us three truths about God. The first one is that God is perfectly good and just. God is perfectly good and just. The second is God is the ultimate authority. And finally, God is almighty. There is no one more powerful than Him. He starts by telling us that God is perfectly good, perfectly just. Now, notice Job's predicament. And I've hit on it earlier. Job is a perfectly righteous man, and yet bad things happen to him. Bad things are coming about. And so Job finally says, he finally breaks down and says, God has unjustly put me in the wrong. Or let's put it a different way. Let's put it in a way that maybe we resonate with. I'm a good person, and God has let bad things happen to me. That's his argument. And so therefore, he says, God cannot be just. He can't be good. Because he has acted unjustly towards me. Notice, Elihu steps up to the plate, and he says this. Look at verse uh, 10. He says that it's not possible for God to be wicked or unjust. He says, 
Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Look at what he says. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. That word far be it, that expression means that in Elihu's mind, he's saying it is not possible for God to be like that. It is outside of his nature for him to be unjust. But why? Why? Well, look at what he says next in verse 11. He explains why God is just. Explains why he is good. He says, For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befallen. This is how God is just. God will repay every person according to what that person has done. That is perfect justice, right? It says later that God doesn't have to, he doesn't have to size up a person. He already knows and he says that he perfectly repays every person according to what they have done. Despite Job's circumstances, what Job should have known is that God will ultimately deal with Job according to his works. Even though it doesn't look like it in the moment, God is not unjust, but God will give him what he deserves. God says this repeatedly about himself that he doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. In Exodus 34, he appears to Moses, and this is what he says to Moses. He says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. We love that, but look at the next verse. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Listen, there is no one in the universe who is more just than God. He is the only one who can size us up, can size up a person and give them what they deserve. And so Elihu concludes, therefore, verse 12, God is perfectly just. If that's the way that God is, if He, if he perfectly gives each person according to their, to their deeds, what they've done. Therefore, God is perfectly just. It's not possible for God to be evil. It's not possible for God to be unjust. That is outside of His character. So, let's rephrase Job's question that he's asking. Let's rephrase it a little bit. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's what's at the heart of all of this. And we all, probably everyone in this room has had that very question. How can God let bad things happen to good people? And I just want to make a couple of observations. First of all, from what we see here, uh, even when it appears otherwise, God will work justice for everyone. We see that in Job's life. Even though it looks like he is judging Job, even though it looks like he is causing bad things to happen, in the end, he gives Job what he deserves. The second observation is, we don't see all the factors, but God does. I mean, have, have you ever tried to explain to a three-year-old why you're taking a certain action? They're not going to understand it. 
They're not going to piece together the big picture. They don't understand everything that we understand. And so when we try to explain to a three-year-old why we're taking an action that maybe they think is not fair and not right, they just don't comprehend it. Listen, in many ways, we're just like the three-year-old. We don't understand like God does. There's facts. There's things out there we just can't comprehend. And the last observation that, that I would make is that we don't know the ways of God. Kind of just like what I just said. We don't know the ways of God. He's far transcendent to, to our minds. Far transcendent to us. We don't know His ways, but we know that He is good. We know that He is good. Heard one song one time that said, When I can't see His hands, I trust His heart. We know that He is good. You know, when I think about God being just and people challenging His justice, one thing that I hear quite a bit is not just, why does God let bad things happen to good people? But I also hear the question quite a bit, why does God, how does God, if He's just, how does He send people to hell? If God is just, how does that happen? If He's loving, how does that happen? I heard one man, we were, we were talking about it, he said, it seems unreasonable that God would punish people because they don't follow the right religion. And, and as we talked more, I'm like, you know, that, that sounds right. You know, we, we like to say, well, you mean to tell me that God is, is going to put somebody facing His eternal wrath because they didn't follow the right religion? But, but, notice what we've just read in the text in verse 11, that God repays people according to their works. According to their works. Listen, that's not good news for us. That's not good news. It sounds at first like it is. It sounds like, man, I'm good. He's going to judge me according to my works. No, that's actually very bad. Because you need to understand that when God sizes us up, when He judges us, He doesn't judge us by our standard. You know, by my standard, I'm a great person. But when you start to put us next to the holiness of God, all of a sudden you'll find that we're all lacking. All of a sudden you, you start to realize that Him judging us according to our works is, is bad for us. And so listen, what that, what that means is there is never going to be a person who faces God's eternal wrath who doesn't deserve to be there. It's not like, well, you followed the wrong religion, so you got there even though you didn't deserve it, even though you were a good person. No. Everyone who will face God's wrath, which by default is every single person in this room, that's where we all deserve. That's what we deserve. But... Why? Why? The, the question of the hour, why? Why does a finite sin merit an eternal, infinite punishment? Listen, you've got to understand what sin is. Sin is against God, first and foremost. Sin is cosmic treason against the one true King. And so, sin, therefore, 
because it's this cosmic treason against this infinite being, it deserves an infinite wrath. But there's a question I want to go back to. I made the observation earlier that even though when we can't see God's ways, we know He's good. Well, how do we know He's good? Listen. The clearest picture of God's justice is actually not seen in Him judging sinners. The ultimate, clearest picture that we have of God's justice, listen, is the cross of Christ. We don't think about the cross displaying God's justice, but it displays His justice just as much as it does His love. Because think about the cross... God judges every person according to their deeds. We are all guilty before Him. And so God, in forgiving us, cannot just say, I forgive you, we're done here. He can't just say, let me sweep it under the rug. But no, if God is truly just, then that means sin must be punished. And so the cross is where we see that God is loving, He's forgiving, but He will not let the guilty go unpunished. And so what He does, listen, what He does at the cross is He takes our sin, He takes our wrongdoing, and He causes another to pay the penalty for it. And the one who pays the penalty is not like us. The one who pays the penalty is not someone who's a sinner like us, but it's someone who is actually God in the flesh, who is perfect in every way, who has never sinned, who has met the divine mark of holiness. And so listen, we see God's justice at work in that God forgives us. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead He gives Jesus what we deserve. And here's the beauty of it, church. We see His justice also in that Jesus takes our penalty, but listen, we get His righteousness. So God doesn't just say, I forgive you. But listen, God says when He looks at the Christian, when He looks at the one who's clinging to Christ, I look at you and see the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of my son Jesus. Listen, God is just and good. And we see that ultimately at the cross. And so the question for us today, if we are all facing His wrath, if we are truly sinners, then His justice demands that we face His wrath. And so the question is, will you cling to the One? Will you cling to the One who has taken His wrath for you? Will you cling to the One who died in your place? Will you surrender to Him and receive forgiveness this morning? God is good. God is just. The second thing that Elihu says is that God is the ultimate authority. Notice what he says next in verse 13. Who gave Him charge over the earth? And who laid on Him the whole world? Right? We've all heard kids ask the question, and and I, I'm going to be honest, I've asked it too when I was little. Where did God come from? Where did God start? You know, as kids we think every, everything has a start. We had a start, so where did God come from? That's really hard to answer, isn't it? Well, you know, God, God wasn't born. 
God has always been there. There was never a time where He was not. And so Elihu is actually asking that same question, put in a different way. Who gave God the right to rule? I mean, let's trace it back. I mean, when you look at authority figures in our lives, you know, we've got uh, you know, authority figures. We have uh, you know, law enforcement that we consider authority. We have our court system we consider an authority. You can keep appealing all the way up and finally you get to the top in our country. You get to the President. You get to the Congress. You get to the Supreme Court. The highest authority in the land. But there's an authority higher than them. Who gave them that authority? And ultimately, as you trace it up, you're going to finally get to the person who outright has authority and who has always had authority who is the perfect embodiment of authority. And that person, listen, is God. And that's what Elihu is making the point. He's saying, no one ever gave God the right to rule. Because He's God, it's His right. Because He's God, He is in authority. God doesn't report to anyone. King Nebuchadnezzar says this in Daniel 4. He says, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand and none can say to Him, what have you done? He doesn't answer to anybody. At the end of the book of Job, that's what Job comes to understand about God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You are perfectly in control. Elihu says that case in point... God's authority is seen in His ability to give life and take it. That's where He goes next. Look at what He says in verse 14. If He should set His heart to it and gather to Himself His spirit and His breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. He's saying because God is the ultimate authority, only God has the authority to give life and only God has the authority to take it. Why do you think murder is so heinous? I mean, it's heinous enough if you take God out of the picture, but realize murder is, is so heinous. Murder is so wrong because it's against God. When someone murders, they are usurping the authority of God. And they're saying, I have the right to take life. God has the ultimate authority. And listen, it's not just an abstract idea. God's authority is not just an abstract idea, but it actually starts to get very personal. He doesn't just have all authority over everything, but that means, listen, He has the authority to tell me what to do. That means that He is my ultimate authority. We like the idea of authority as long as it's abstract, but we don't like the idea when someone says, I'm the authority over you. We lived in Wake Forest for about four years before coming here, and we moved into a new uh, apartment up there. And, and this apartment was, I mean, as, as just about city as you get. I mean, we were, on the, we were on the street, just about very close to the street. Right next to our apartment was the high school. And so, you know, every day there would be, twice a day, there would be a traffic jam as cars are lined up, hard to get in, hard to get out. When we first moved there, though, we had a, a, a tiny driveway, 
And the only way you could park there is to park one vehicle uh, behind the other. Which worked out great unless you needed the car that was in front. And so one day, I got smart. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to park on the street. This is my house. I live here. Yeah, I know there's a no parking sign on the, on the street. But that's because the high school's here. They don't want high schoolers parking here. But I live here. Y'all, I was probably there at home for 30 minutes and walked back out to my car. And guess what was on the windshield? A parking ticket. And again, I just thought, no big deal. I'll go appeal it. I'll, I'll explain to them that, you know what? I live here. It's no big deal. Just, just you know, cancel the ticket. So I get there on the appointed day to appeal the ticket. I sit be- before the, uh, the, the appeal board and I give them my side of the story and they ask me to step out of the room while they deliberate. They come and get me, bring me in. And they, Mr. Warren, we just want you to know we're going to enforce that ticket. You should not have parked on the street. There was a no parking sign on the street, y'all. I was a, they knew I was a seminary student. But as much as a seminary student could lose it, I lost it. And I proceeded to tell them that it is wrong for them to, to tell people who live there that they can't park on the street. Come on! I proceeded to tell them, who are you to tell me that I can't park there? And guess what I did after that? I went to the town hall and got a parking permit so I could park there. I ended up following the rules. Listen, here's the point in all of this. I did not like the town of Wake Forest telling me what I was going to do because I thought that I knew what was best for me. I knew where I ought to park. And then the authority came and said, no, you're not recognizing the authority that this town has over you. You are not to park there unless you have a permit. Listen. We're in that same boat because we think that we have authority over ourselves. We think that we have authority, that we know what's best for us. And no one, not even God Himself, has the right to tell us what to do. Right? I mean, how many of us, when we, when we look at God's Word where it says that we should do something or we should stop doing something, how often do we say, well, you know, That doesn't really apply to me. I think I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Listen, the question for us this morning is, do I recognize and submit to His authority over my life? Or do I just simply say, what right, God, do you have to tell me what to do? Who do you think you are? So listen, if you're you're in the room this morning and you're a Christian, if you're a Christian Do you submit to what He says? If you're a Christian, that means that you really believe that He's just. If you're a Christian, it means that you really believe that people are going to stand before Him one day and give an account. If you're a Christian, that means that you really believe that the ultimate justice of God was seen at the cross, that Jesus bled and died in your place. So listen, the question is, how can you believe all of that and still say, God, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. We were bought with too high a price. We know who our God is. 
We know of His glory. We know of His justice. We know of His majesty. And how can we who know all that look at Him and still say, God, you know, I think I'm going to live life the way that I want to live it. Who do we think that we are? And listen, there's, there's some, some of you in the room right now that you may be living in sin right now, refusing to submit to God's authority even now in some area of your life or another. And for you, listen, the call from Job is to repent. To repent and humbly put yourself under His authority. To repent and say, Lord, I've been going my own way, but I recognize that You are in authority. You are doing all things for my good, and I'm going to surrender to You. We see that God is perfectly just. We see that God is <clears throat> that God is the ultimate authority over our lives. And finally, we see that God is almighty. God is almighty. Look at where, look at where Elihu turns his attention to, starting in verse 16. He says, If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? He's basically saying, if God is not just, if He hates justice, He can't govern. But God does govern, therefore He must be just. Can He who hates justice govern? Shall, will you condemn Him who is righteous and mighty? And I love there, we, we know the, He just referred to God as righteous and mighty. We know God is righteous, but I love that He brings in God's might. God's power. He's like, are you going to condemn the one who is righteous? Yes, but mighty, all-powerful? Listen, God finally shows up in the book of Job, and He speaks to Job, and this is what He says, Job 40, verses 8 and 9. God says this to him, Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Verse 9. Have you an arm like God... And can you thunder with a voice like His? Basically, God is saying, Job, are you as powerful as I am? And that's the point that Elihu is making. That God is almighty. That there is no one who has more power, more might than Him. And look at what God does. God is so powerful that He speaks to kings as if they're nothing. Look at the next verse. He says, who says to a king, worthless one. I mean, can you imagine walking up to the most powerful ruler in the world and saying, you scoundrel? That's a bad idea. You're not as powerful as that king. Who are you to tell him that? Listen, God has all power. He goes up to the most powerful king in the world and said, you're worthless. He says to the most noble in the world that you're wicked. God can do it because He is infinitely more powerful than those kings. This is the God that we come to. A God who has all power. Who looks upon people all the same as if they are nothing. And notice He says He regards kings that way. He shows... Verse 19, no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work 
of his hands. God sees the most powerful people in the world and the weakest people in the world as if they were one and the same. Because listen, we are all, despite the power that we think that we have, we are all works of his hands. We are all works of his hands. We think we are something. Man, we think that we are powerful. We think that we are in control. And when God shows up, he's like, no. You're nothing compared to my infinite power. Look at what he says in verse 20. Verse 20 tells us just how fragile life is. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away. And the mighty are taken away by no human hand. Listen, as powerful as we think that we are one day, we will perish. We will perish. The question before us this morning as we look at God's power, in light of His power, in light of His might, will you humble yourself before Him? Will you humble yourself before Him? And then in your humility, will you submit and obey? Listen, God is so powerful. He can take an enemy and make him his friend. I want you to see that God doesn't just use his power to judge, but God uses his power to restore God is so powerful that He can take a sinner and make them a saint. You know, when I think about living a life in obedience to God and I think about how I'm supposed to, to live my life for Him, I just think how hard it is. Like, how am I going to do that? And, and you're probably in the same boat. Like, that's too hard. Can I really just pull myself up by the bootstraps and do that? But when I think about God's power at work in us, all of a sudden I realize that the very thing that God commands from us, He gives to us. If you're in Christ today, He demands your obedience. If you're in Christ today, He demands you to submit to Him. But listen, He gives you the power to do it. He gives you the Holy Spirit to enable you. A song that I particularly resonate with is a song that, that just shares, that declares how weak I am and that the harder I try, I just don't measure up. The harder I try, the more clearly can I feel the depth of our fall and the weight of it all. And so this might could be the most impossible thing. Your grandness in me. Your power in me, making me clean. Listen, church. How, how, how am I calling on you to submit to God's authority, to humble yourself? I'm, I'm calling on you to do that in His power. In His enabling grace. And basically, I'm here to tell you that you don't have it in you to live the way that He tells you to to be the person, the kind of person that He calls you to be. But that's the beauty of His power. That in His power, in His mercy, He makes us into that. 
we see in this passage that God is perfectly just. Trust His goodness. Trust His goodness. God is the ultimate authority. Submit to Him. Finally, God is almighty. Humble yourself before Him. Like Job does in the end, we should humbly submit to God's authority. As we get ready to move to a time of response, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Some of you, for the very first time, need to submit to God's authority. For the very first time, you need to come to the cross and say, Lord, forgive me. You need to come to the cross and cling to Christ. Receive Him today. And surrender yourself to Him for the first time. But listen, there's others of you here who need to repent of usurping God's authority. You need to repent of usurping God's authority and going your own way. We were bought with a price. Today, if that's you, you need to repent. You need to fall on your face before God and beg for His forgiveness and beg for His help. And listen, some of you this morning need to renew your trust in God's goodness. Listen, I know some of you are facing things right now that are horrible. You're going through situations where you feel like you've lost everything. You're going through times where you feel despair. Listen, as you go through those times, instead of running away from God, listen, trust His goodness. Trust His goodness. He will get you through. Just like He does for Job. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you, Lord, that in all of your justice and in all of your glory, Lord, that you went to a cross how great a God Who is God like you, Lord, who pardons iniquity? Who even though I deserve your wrath, even though I was born your enemy, Lord, you used your glory, you used your power, you used your authority to make me your friend. So Lord, I pray that you would help me to surrender. Help us here to surrender in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.